we, 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 didn't, we didn't finish six. Did we? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, we're in Matthew chapter six. <laughs> we're still covering the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, last week, we started really the beginning of chapter six. We spoke about, Jesus spoke really about a lot of hypocrisy in the religious system, but certainly as believers, we can look at that and see how we might be tempted to be hypocritical in some of these areas of uh, charity, helping out others, right? Touting ourselves as look at me. Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing in prayer and also in fasting or in some type of sacrifice. When we start making it known, oh, look at me, I'm fasting or uh, look at my eloquent prayers, we start to take away really the relationship between us and the Lord and we start to put the focus on ourselves so everyone else can see. So Jesus really was uh, teaching is unmatched by any man that ever lived. Of course, he was the son of God, is the son of God. But today we're going to transition to wealth and worry. However, we're going to see, we're going to go from hypocrisy really to idolatry. And we'll look at what he says about those issues. So we're just going to jump in. Verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, he's not saying that wealth in and of itself, if you get an inheritance or your business does well, that you are evil or you've got to get rid of that money because it's evil. He's not saying that. But the problem, again, is idolatry which is always designed to ruin our relationship with the Lord. Now, idolatry could be anything where, and I'm going to do the vision test later in the sermon, that God is always in the background. And this particular thing, this particular person, this particular relationship is always in the forefront, and God is always an afterthought. That can be an idol. You can make anything in your life an idol. God says there will be no other gods before me. I want to be first in your life. So we always have to look at that. Wealth is just a way for whether you're poor or rich, uh, it, it does affect a cross-section of society because money is a medium of exchange and we all have to use it. But don't let it become idolatrous. Obsession or accumulating earthly wealth is just another way to take our focus off of God and the eternal. According to Jesus, heavenly treasures are the way to go. Number one, they're secure. They don't lose value. They pay great dividends and they go on forever. Certainly everything you would want in a portfolio. Now, is Jesus saying that uh, being rich is evil? No. That we shouldn't save or provide for our family? He's not saying that. Or is he advocating, as some would look at this, class warfare? And you, see, you hear that term a lot in our uh, political uh, arena. He's not advocating that either. Verse 21, he says it's a heart issue. So let's talk about earthly treasures for a moment. The question is, how much money do we actually need? If somebody came up to you today after church and handed you $5,000 cash, you'd probably go, wow, look what I got. No strings attached. This is great. And then after, you know, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to put a little bit in the bank, and then you might say to yourself, gee, if I only had $15,000, I could pay off my car loan. And next day, somebody walks up to you, gives you $15,000. Wow, this is exciting. Fifteen, look, I don't have to get that nagging bill every month. Uh, and you may think about it for a while and say, you know, if I only had $80,000, I could pay off my mortgage. Right? It never ends. However, somehow we get by day by day without those lump sums of cash. 
Now, I read an article a few years back about Ted Turner, and he said he needed his $2 billion because that's for his retirement. Now, I got news for you. At his age, if he needs $2 billion to retire, I think we're all in a lot of trouble right now. But it's this hoarding mentality. And in essence, we can die before we even get to enjoy it. The workaholic. The father who doesn't pay attention to his kids, and not because he has to work, but because he wants to keep working and working and working, and we need this and we need that, and we have to save for some 20 years down the road. Uh, and then, you know, like the cat's in the cradle, when uh, the kid grows up, there's no relationship, and he goes off on his own. It could be very sad, and it could be a, a, can be a trap. The richest man in the world, Solomon, arguably, uh, mused over this in Ecclesiastes. He built so much, he described his empire, and he said, who am I going to leave it to? I'm paraphrasing, what if my kid is a jerk and he squanders it? What does it matter? You're not going to be around. But if you look at, <laughs> there's some supporting parables here. Luke 12, the parable of the rich fool. Here's a guy who, in, in those days, wealth was measured by oil or grain or cattle. Well, this guy had a ton of grain or a few tons. And he says to himself, self, you know, what am I going to do with all this grain? I'm going to tear down my barns, build bigger ones, because I have so much stuff that I'm accumulating. And God says to him, you fool, this night your life will be required of you. And then where is all that wealth going to go to? And furthermore, now he's got to stand before the Lord. Right? It's a very sobering picture. The pharaohs, if you study ancient Egypt and the pyramids, the pharaohs buried, they were buried with gold and furniture and boats and all kinds of stuff, even live slaves. Think about how sick that was when they closed the tomb on these guys and they, lived, they died a slow death in darkness. Because these lunatics thought that they could take this stuff into the afterlife. Frightening. Now, economics was my major only because I changed subjects about four or five times in college. And I, had to, I got eventually, I was running out of time. I had to put something together. But I did learn a lot in economics. And what I learned was that money is constantly changing value. And you can lose your mind trying to keep up with it. Look at history. Look at the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. Look at the French Revolution. Every one of these revolutions, the invasion of Berlin, money immediately changed hands from the haves to the have-nots. And then years later, something else happened, and it would flip again. Look at our country, the dot-com stocks. People were overnight millionaires because of the computers and such, uh, and, the, and the websites and things that they were doing. Um, look at the stock market up upheavals uh, in, in a... You know, in a one week's time, you could lose your entire life savings due to the stock market. And it shows that earthly wealth is unstable, and it's constantly changing hands. I did a study on Revelation 18, you can check that out in the archives, on political and economic Babylon and where this world is heading under the one world monetary system and such, and it's a very interesting study. You look at Louisiana, the flood, right, the levee breaking, it was a microcosm of disaster. Didn't matter how much money you had because there were gangs of robbers when the infrastructure fell apart and they were robbing people at gunpoint, kicking them out of their homes and taking all their money. So probably guns would have been a good investment back then, although I'm not advocating that. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to build a bunker anytime soon downstairs, so don't worry about it. Y2K, I had Christian friends that were hoarding gold. Well, what if everything fell apart in Y2K? What are you going to do with a lump of gold? Put a straw in it and suck juice out of it, right? <laughs> Any good economist will tell you after a, natural, after a disaster and the infrastructure shot, people barter. I've got some water, you've got some eggs, I've got some clothing, you've got a chicken in your backyard, it looks mighty good right now. You know, that's what you do, you barter. 
But the bottom line is 21. Where is our heart? Is this about wealth? Yes and no. Yes and no. The love of, the, of wealth, though, is just a good way to ferret out if a believer is really a believer, if their heart is truly for the Lord. And wealth is a good temptation or a litmus test to see. Are we over-focused on wealth? Because the Bible says that if we love the world and the things of the world, love, remember, the love of the Father isn't in us. Again, we all use money as a medium of exchange, but where is it regarding your heart? You know, do you idolize it? If you look at Judas, you know, in one of the uh, Gospels, it says that Judas was actually taking from the treasury that the disciples were putting together. Well, probably, I'm not going to say that it caused Jesus to feed everyone through miracles, but maybe there wasn't a lot of money left because Judas kept taking money. Here's a guy who walked with the Lord. Here's a guy who had promise. No doubt, in some way, he had at least seen the miracles. He might have even been a party to the miracles, but his concern was for the money. And look what happened at the end of his life. I want to read this in 1 Timothy 6, a few verses. 1 Timothy 6. Paul says, he speaks about the useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. The name it and claim it, guys. They've made a whole religion out of this stuff. God wants you to be wealthy, and the way you can do it is through preaching the gospel. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certainly we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. For those who desire, not who are, who desire to be rich, fall into temptations and a snare, and many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I've seen that in my own short ministry, that money or the things of the world, you know, the person had promise, and they left the things of God to follow what the world had to offer. Pretty sad. I'm going to leave you with one more paraphrase of a parable, and this you can read on your own in Luke 16, the parable of the shrewd manager. Here's a situation where there's a guy who's a, a manager, and he's going to be let go soon. They don't give you the circumstances. Jesus tells a story. And what this guy does is he goes to his master's debtors, and he says, you owe my, my master a certain amount of oil. He goes, just write your ticket, take a percentage off, and you, you're good. I'll just say that you paid it off. He goes to another one of his master's debtors who owes him a whole bunch of grain and says, listen, just give me a percentage here. We'll write it off. We'll say that you paid it all. And, uh, you know, go on your way. The actual master of this manager commends him, probably because he was able to collect on his debts that he hasn't been able to do maybe for 10 years, and I'm reading into the text. But he, he commends him. Now, Jesus even says that the sons of the world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. What does that mean? That means that if you're of the world and you don't care about salvation, you're just living for the here and now, that means that you're shrewd in how you handle money and how you do things. And you can, you know, uh, pile up for yourself treasures on earth. However, the sons of light, which is us, even back then, he said they're not as shrewd. Now, I would tell you this, that the sons of light, even today, we can be very shrewd with getting money and the things of the world. That's not what Jesus is speaking about. He's speaking about furthering God's kingdom. 
So the concern that Jesus had was the amazing uh, charisma or the amazing ability and talents that these sons of the world had in getting what they wanted in the world. And I think he's musing that the believer should be the same way in shrewdness when it comes to furthering the things of God. Are we? We all have resources, money, talents, gifts, abilities that God has given us. Do we use it to further the kingdom of heaven? Or are we like the sons of the world? Can the world tell the difference between us and the world? The sons of the light and the sons of the world. So it brings us to the next two verses, which I'm going to jump into, that seem to change the subject, but not really. Verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good... Uh, alternate translation, clear or healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or evil or unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Sometimes when we read what Jesus says, and I can see the disciples and the followers scratching their heads saying, what, dark is light? It's pretty wild, but we, we have to check this out here. This is probably where the expression, the eye is the window to the soul, because a lot of our expressions come from God's word, or the evil eye come from. But the eye does two things. It brings us light, and it brings us focus. The eye has the ability to take a snapshot of the world. Right now, as I look out at you, I can see who's kind of nodding off, falling asleep, (laughs) who's fidgeting, who's not paying attention. You can really see a lot from up here. So the world is coming into my brain through the organ of the eye, or the in stereo there. In the other direction, the eye can be used in the other direction to focus on something, to take my whole body and bridle it. That's why Paul speaks about when the Christian life is like running a race. You know, you erase, you keep your eye on the finish line, you're, you're cognizant of what you need to be doing, you beat your body into subjection, because you're looking towards the finish line. The goal is the Lord. However, with me, if I'm running a race, what does my eye do for me? It, it keeps me on the right track, keeps me from bumping into other runners, it keeps me from going off the track and being disqualified. But what it also does is when I see the finish line, my eye tells the brain, the brain tells my, the rest of my body, kick it into high gear and sprint, because there's the finish line, you've got to get past those two runners in front of you. So the eye also has the ability to focus and bridle the whole body, this little organ. Pretty impressive, isn't it? It does a lot. So Jesus uses this, of course, with spiritual implication. So if your eye is good, if it's full of light. And I think the question here is, where is our focus? Now, I've done this before. I think it's appropriate. And you can put your hand up. But basically, if I put my finger up, or you put yours up, and you look at me past your pointer finger, if you're focused on me, you have two pointer fingers, don't you? It's the way the eye works. If you're focused on your finger, there's two of me, right? Anybody, nobody tried to do that before? <laughs> We're going to do a little biology today. It's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to see. But the truth is, we do that with the things of the world and the things of God. And God says that we have to make a decision. We're either so focused on the things of the world that God becomes blurry Or we can be so focused on God that everything else is supporting or ancillary or not even quite as important. And that's where our focus needs to be, doing that finger test. Because our focus is what is is a reflection of what's inside. Now, I can say I'm a believer, but I could be focused so much on wealth or myself or my own comfort 
or my own being taken care of, that I can say that I'm a believer, but my actions show something quite different. And verse 23, the second part, Jesus says, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? How can they coexist? They can't. And that's the point. Jesus wants to stimulate our thought processes and how we look at these things. They're mutually exclusive. You're either full of light or you're full of darkness. Now, I will say today that even if you've come in here and you've never been exposed to the Bible before, you're exposed to light. It isn't me. It's in God's word, the truths of his word. You will be held accountable for what you receive in terms of the light that you receive. And you can make the choice to, dis- to discard, well, you know, I'm not really into this church, too much Jesus, too much Bible, and I've heard that. I just want to go somewhere where we eat a lot, have a lot of functions, you know, and I can give money and say I'm a good person. That's not here. <laughs> I hate to disappoint you. Are we full of light or are we full of darkness? Now, um, being full of the world, of course, is the antithesis of faith and trust in God. Why? Because what you're saying to God is, I don't want to walk daily with you. I don't want to get up today and see where you're going to take me or, uh, you know, look at your provisions. I want to do it my way. I want to have a little buffer. I feel comfortable with that, Lord, a little cushion, you know, a little safety net for myself. I don't want to rely on you because that's kind of scary, isn't it? Right? Really trusting God? How many of us really 100% trust God? It's interesting to look at. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon was the understanding of the God of riches. So Jesus takes this concept of mutual exclusion a little bit further. Now, back then... There was state-sanctioned slavery. There was indentured servitude. There was even those who, uh, for a a wage, would take care of these uh, wealthy folk, and they would put themselves in those situations. There were those that had to pay off a debt. So in some way or another, you were a servant. Now, if you really had a master, somebody that you had to completely answer to, you couldn't have two masters. You couldn't physically, emotionally, uh, you couldn't do it. Because both of those masters would demand 100% of your time and your loyalty. So Jesus is saying you can't serve God and you can't serve riches at the same time. And I would say this, that sometimes when we try to serve wealth, it's like those little mice on a hamster wheel. You know, we keep running and running and we're running and the wheel's turning, but we're really not getting anywhere. And I would just say that as a personal testimony, uh, before I knew the Lord, that was me. It was working and working and working. I worked, I was single, you know, what what did I need that was so pressing? Bought my first house in my 20s, fixed it up, sold it up, bought another house, bought the car that I wanted. I would work double shifts. I would work triple shifts. I literally would work 24 hours straight, so driven, but I wasn't happy. I was like that little mouse. And I get tired and I'd stop and I'm like, I didn't get anywhere, you know? But my God was money. I was a police officer. How much did I think I was really going to make, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) <laughs> but I was never satisfied. For some of us, put, this teaching will put us at a crossroads with our walk with the Lord. For some of us, we'll have to stop fence-sitting. And for all of us, hopefully this reading today will give us the tools for a, a, a deeper walk with the Lord. Verse 25. 
Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. If we believers, if we are believers and we truly trust God, we don't obsess, we don't worry about all these little things in life and the basic necessities. And Jesus gives us an example from nature. As smart and as tech savvy as we become, I'm still impressed by God's simple things in nature. And I could just see Jesus as he was teaching, pointing out to the birds that were going back and forth and then explaining what their, their habits were, you know, as, as God's creatures, simple creations. But the birds, they don't fret, they don't worry, but God takes care of them. Now, I think this is very timely with the snow. And it was funny because I was thinking the last time I taught on this in Luke, uh, it was snowing out. And what I think about when I look outside, uh, there's another property that butts up to ours, and it's, it's just 28 acres of wooded area. And when the snow falls and the leaves are not on the trees, there's a blanket, especially that last snowstorm we had, the big one. Uh, I looked out in my backyard and looked into the woods, and there was almost two feet of snow blanketing everything. Now, I know that animals go, go in holes and stuff, but we have possums and skunks and, you know, raccoons and cats. We have all kinds of stuff out there, snakes, frogs. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm reading the scripture, I'm looking at the snow, I'm like, wow, yeah. If, if nothing else, he puts in them the instinct to find a burrow uh, place or, or get somewhere where they can get shelter. So it kind of blows me away that, yeah, God does provide, even though I see all this snow. Now, I had to help him along in the last, um, you know, snowstorm. <laughs> My wife and I are animal lovers. And on top of shoveling everything else, I shoveled the path from our house where we've put out food to feed them, you know, all the way into the woods. And then I kind of made a catwalk and I'm just shoveling and shoveling and shoveling and shoveling. And sure enough, like, like the Red Sea, they would come through the shoveled path and there'd be snow on each side and they'd go right to the to food. It was amazing. You know, my wife puts out suet cakes and seeds for the birds, and they need this for their winter coat and all this kind of stuff. And I say, babe, the Bible says that God provides. And she answers me. Her response is, yeah, but don't you think he might be providing through us? So, okay. The lilies of the field. I looked at some of these uh, lilies online, and, you know, I just, I can't help myself. Anything in here, I got to really get into and really meditate on. And I went online and I looked at some of these gorgeous lilies that grow on the, on the, yeah, on the mountainsides of, uh, of Nazareth. And they are beautiful in colors and their, their arrangement is so beautiful. And, and I'm just looking at these. I'm like, wow, how gorgeous. And he says, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed by the, like these flowers. Now, of course, Solomon was one of the 
wealthiest kings ever. And of course, these kings would have beautiful thrones, they would have beautiful robes, investments, and jewelry, and they, you know, the common person will look at that and say, wow, look at that, all that bling, so to speak. But what Jesus is saying is that these lilies, when the sun comes and there's a drought, it completely dries these lilies out. And what the people do is they gather these dried vegetation, put it in there, and they live simple life. Even today, they would take this uh, dried out vegetation and put it in their ovens and light it and, you know, cook from that. So they would come and go. But then when the water comes back again, these lilies come back. And he says, as beautiful as they are and their, their vestments, aren't you more important than those lilies? So even though God puts care into the birds and the animals and the, the things of nature, he says that we are more important. Sandwiched in here is this thing about stressing, about adding a cubit to your stature. Now, basically what it's saying is a cubit in those days was from the elbow to the tip of the fingers. It was like 18 inches. I guess if you were short, you know, it would bother you, you'd worry, you'd stress, and he says, you're not going to get any taller by that. In my 20s, I was six foot tall, and I always liked that number. In my 40s, somehow, I went to the doctor, I'm five foot 11 and a quarter. Kind of bugs me, but I'm, I lost that battle. I'm not getting that back. Let's talk about worry. Now, I believe in the next 10 or 15 minutes, I'm really going to hit a lot of people with this. Because we live in America in a very stressful society. I meet some from other countries, even from down south. And I'm like, what is with you? Pick up the pace a little bit. Come on, you're in New Jersey. You know? And that's what we expect. You know, it's hustle and hustle and bustle. And you know, once I leave church, I got 10 things to do on my list. And then I got to get up for work in the morning. That's the society we live in. So I really want you to meditate on this discussion about worry and stress. Worry, anxiety, being stressed, fear, anger, they're all closely associated physiologically. I'm going to go through what they can do for us, because they can do some things for us, but what they can do to us. It's the difference between eustress and distress. So if you're working out and you want to keep your heart in shape, that is eustress. It's a good form of stress. Uh, but there's also distress. If you are being uh, chased by a bear or somebody's attacking you, you know, the blood starts pumping, you get that adrenaline burst, and you, it's either fight or flight. So let's look at these for a moment. Let's start off with what these things can do for us. There's two main chemicals that the body produces in this situation. If you look at your kidneys, on top of the kidneys are the adrenal glands. The adrenal glands will dump adrenaline and cortisol into the bloodstream. And what these things do is they, they're catabolic. That means they break tissue down, they break stores uh, of, of food down. Uh, they can't do anything anabolic, anabolically, which means to, to build up. So they're basically, they metabolize and they, they provide you with the, the, the energy and the burst that you need to either fight or flee. So that could be good if you're being chased by a bear. But what can this stuff do to us? Well, what it does is, if we're not being chased by a bear, it puts us in a constant state of uh, what's called a, a sympathetic nervous system versus a parasympathetic nervous system response. The sympathetic nervous system is the fight or flight. Okay? There's, uh, the body goes into these physiological changes, you know, the heart races, the blood pressure goes up, uh, and these things happen. The parasympathetic nervous system helps to slow everything down, to calm the nerves. It's called the rest and digest phase, which some of us need to be more in the rest and digest phase. So if you're really charged up on adrenaline, you probably shouldn't eat because you won't digest very well. But in a prolonged state, what happens is these hormones attack 
and uh, affect every system of the body, including the brain, cognitive, uh, emotions, all those kinds of things. And what happens is over a long period of time, it can put us in a state of post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, this isn't to supplement any doctor's visits. I'm just trying to give you a little overview here. <laughs> I know you don't want to pay the copay, but you know. <laughs> Here's the deal. When you look at a soldier coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan, they're constantly in that fight-or-flight mode that when they come back, they have memories, they have flashbacks. This happened in the Vietnam era. And they need time for their nerves to calm down and to go back to homeostasis. Uh, maybe uh, somebody who's weak in society, who's assaulted or robbed, or they're traumatized in some way. They need some time to calm down. This isn't what Jesus is speaking about. I know my Jesus that if a soldier came off the, the battlefield, he wouldn't say, hey, Come on, don't worry about it. What's your problem? He probably would put his hand on the person and touch them and heal them. What is he talking about? Well, we do stress ourselves out about trivial things. And part of this has to do with worry about finances, which we just covered. I don't think there's a coincidence that he speaks about it right after wealth and, and making wealth and idolatry. And also, we can worry about things that will happen 30 years in the future as if we know we're going to be around that long, right? And sometimes we get to that place in the future and look back and go, I can't believe I worried about that. That was ridiculous. How many of us have ever looked back and, and said, I can't believe I made myself sick over that situation? You know, why the stress? I mean, who's been there? Now, a little transparency from the pulpit. Um, that roof that was leaking for ever since we came here, and it got progressively worse, to the point where one Sunday I actually had, there was buckets all the way around catching all the drips and tarps over the equipment. So I'm going to bed in my house, right? I sleep in my house in my nice snuggly bed there with the nice pillow and all. I got my eyes closed and it starts to rain at my house. Didn't come in the house. So I hear the rain beating on the roof of my house and all of a sudden my eyes open up and I'm thinking, I wonder how much water's coming in the sanctuary right now. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> this, this drove me nuts, but it was God who was really testing me. And to tell you the truth, I said to myself, how can you preach this stuff from the pulpit and not trust God right now? You're being a hypocrite. Yes, I do talk to myself. So if you want to run, you can run now. <laughs> and the other voice said, I don't know where they come from. <laughs> you're right. You're being a hypocrite. I'm sorry, Lord, I trust you. And I would go to sleep. So really, you can... You know, you can do that. I mean, the question is, where are you today with worry and anxiety? How many of you right now are really getting hit by this message? Or what comes to your mind, since your hands go up, what comes to your mind when I say, what are you stressing about? Everybody now has one thing that just got plastered to their frontal lobe. What is it that you're stressing about? Is it really that important? Will you give God an opportunity to deal with those things and trust him and not worry about it so much. You know, Jesus, you know, sometimes we get caught up in many in, in ministers. It's all about the spirit. It's all about the spirit. It's all about getting to heaven. But we forget that Jesus also cares about our emotional well-being. He cares about our bodies. He made us. Yes, we're in a fallen state. But he doesn't want to see his children suffer. So we shouldn't suffer unnecessarily if we don't need to. Now let me get to the spiritual part. Worry, anxiety, and fear is the antithesis to faith and trust in God. They are inverse relationships. As one goes up, the other one goes down. As the other one goes up, the other one that was just up goes down. 
And some will say to me, but I can't stop. And of course, I'll respond, yes, you can, because your parasympathetic nervous system is stronger. <laughs> we have strong wills. We get what we want, don't we? How far will we go to get something that we want? I've been there. We can use our wills in the other direction. Now, I will just say this, that if you really look at the mind-brain connection, and, you know, science has made some advance. You know, they look at the amygdala in the brain, the hippocampus, the parahippocampus, spatial imaging, emotions, and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is not everything that's, you know, our mind, when we think, they're non-physical thoughts. Okay? Where's the physical part of it? So there's still, even with the advances in science, there's still a, there's a, a difference, really, between the mind and the brain. I will tell you that the mind tells the brain what to do, and the brain tells the body what to do. Let me give you an example. So if during worship, I go out here, I sneak out, and I hide behind a corner. And you guys are coming. I would never do this. <laughs> just, just an illustration. And you come out, right, uh, and Harold, and you come out, and I jump out, and I scare you. Immediately, before you recognize who I am, your mind will sense fear. And all of a sudden, oh, you gave me an adrenaline rush. Why? Because your mind sensed fear, told your brain to kick in the fight or flight. You might have to run or fight. And then when you, your eyes realize, well, that's Pastor Joe. He just played a dumb prank. You, you start to calm down. And you, the, the heart rate starts to drop. And then your, your, the other system kicks in. So for fun, and I know this is weird, sometimes I'll go to the drugstore. And I'll put my arm in those blood pressure cuffs. I'll take my blood pressure and pulse. And then I'll take my arm out and I'll relax. I'll take a deep breath and I'll think of like, you know, nice thoughts or whatever. I'll put my arm back in and it drops. So you can control to a limited extent how your body works through the brain. Now, this isn't mysticism. I'm not going, you know, Eastern mysticism on you. This is just the way God made the equipment. And we should understand how the equipment works. Because, bringing it back to the scripture, do not worry. Okay, do not worry. Don't stress about these things. If we weren't able to do it, I saw that, Jim. <laughs> if we weren't able to do it, then Jesus wouldn't tell us to do it. He doesn't tell us anything in the scripture that we can't do. If he says we can do it, then we can do it. Now, Jesus says in Luke 12, 29, not to have an anxious mind. And... I would just say this, in 1999, most of you know, maybe with the blended fellowship, you don't, but I had terrible panic attacks and anxiety. There's no way I could have stood up here and looked at all of you. I would have run, jumped out the window or something. But I put myself there. Now, I'm not saying, trust me, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, real tragedy, I'm not saying that that's always the case, but because of my drivenness, type A type of personality, I plummeted. My body, my mind was spent, and it just said, we quit. We're just, we just want to sit on the couch because you've, you've exhausted and tapped us out. It took me a while to get past that. But I did have to change some things in my lifestyle. I did have to change how I thought about things, how I processed things. And uh, it was a, a very painful process to me. Now, I'll just say this as a caveat. If somebody is on medication and they've talked to their doctor and between them and their practitioner, this is a decision they've made, SSRIs or something, we don't judge people. We, we would never, and I know some have done this, well, you should go off your meds in, in faith. That's, that's really dangerous saying something like that. There's a whole physiological aspect to that, especially when it comes to coming down off of it. So you know what? Go to your doctor. I'm not a doctor, and if that's what your doctor has you do, explore some things. Um, I will say, though, that some doctors teach, treat their patients like uh, guinea pigs. They just pump them up with all kinds of stuff and see what works. Get a second opinion. But I certainly wouldn't tell anybody to do that. Don't judge people that have to go through therapy. 
Listen, a lot of pastors want to avoid this. I don't want to avoid it because it's real, it's in the church, and we can't ignore it. Therapy is good. Sometimes people feel that they need to unload and talk. Now, I would just say this. If you're going to talk to somebody, it should be Christian-based. Otherwise, you're just getting the world's knowledge. When I have people in my office and they, they leave my office and they say, oh, thank you very much, what did I do? First thing I did was, and this is hard, I shut up for about 15 minutes, you know, and then listened to their story. Sometimes just the unloading of it is a catharsis. It's a release. And then when they're done, I counsel them through the scripture. You know, sometimes, hey, listen, I'm not licensed. Sometimes people need more than that. God bless you. You know, I'm not going to get offended. Um... But the other thing is not to use, and I've seen this too, don't use emotional issues as a crutch to sin. That's where the mind and the brain kind of have that, that, that difference here. Because when I had the anxiety, the anxiety made me irritable. And I could choose to snap at my wife and be short with her. That was my sin. The anxiety didn't make me sin. I also had the choice, and at times I did, I just walked out the door and took a walk down the street. So don't use your emotions as an excuse to hold somebody else in bondage. The bottom line is Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about the clothes you're going to put on. Trust the Lord. Period. That's the bottom line here. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's the way the Lord set it up. And your needs will be met. God knows what we need. And if he's going to take care of the birds, you know, we, we, we all say, hey, I could use a few extra bucks. But you know what? God takes care of us, sometimes through other people, sometimes through the church, sometimes just through miraculous things. And I've heard that. So we need to seek first the kingdom of God. Now, I will say this, that you will be stressed if you can't distinguish between your wants list and your needs list, you will be stressed if you're looking at your friends and seeing what they have and you don't have that. You will be stressed if you think that you're supposed to be what society tells you that you're supposed to be or look like in those magazines. You will be stressed. Okay? That's, that's not doesn't come from God. So understand those things. Luke 12, 32, just want to read one verse. Jesus says this. Jesus says, do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, does that put it in perspective or what? The kingdom, right? That kingdom come, right, on earth as it is in heaven. That's what God has for us. So if he wants to give us the kingdom, it's not like he's abandoned us here now. There's a difference in a relationship, but his desire is to give us the kingdom. Verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I, I love his wording again. Tomorrow will worry. How is tomorrow going to worry? Tomorrow is inanimate. How could it worry? Does it have a, a mind? But again, it, it gets us to think. The point is not to be concerned about tomorrow. It's been said that we spend too much time regretting the past and worrying about the future. And I would add that we never get to today. Life is lived in today. But if we're constantly regretting things that have happened in the past, things that we've done, uh, I've really made a mess in my life, you know what? Start with today. Walk with the Lord today. Or worrying about tomorrow. Today's never get to you. 
And we can go 30, 40, 50 years and keep regretting the past and worrying about the future and never live our lives. Jesus loves us. Matthew uh, 11, 28 through 30, just another scripture before we close. Jesus says, come to me, all all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There is a component there for the mind. You will find peace. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what Jesus wants from us. I just want to encourage you with that. So, God gives you permission to enjoy your life, to enjoy your family, to enjoy him, to enjoy other believers. God didn't create us to be miserable. He wants us to enjoy. He wants to give us life and that life more abundantly, Jesus says. Sometimes we worry. Sometimes the worry is created out of our own problems. And sometimes it can pertain to money stuff. The worries about the future financially. The way we're going in this country, listen, gas is going up. It's over $3 a gallon. Milk is going up, okay? Um, if we keep borrowing and the Chinese keep holding our debt, well, we're going to owe them trillions of dollars in the future. And then the American dollar, trust me, economics, the American dollar is not going to be worth anything. A loaf of bread may be $30. Amen? Now, do I say that to frighten you? No, I'm just saying that don't be the hamster in the wheel, you know? Just trust the Lord. Be diligent, right? I mean, again, these guys predicting the end of the world, I don't know what their followers do. Do they sell everything and just stand out in the street? Well, I don't know what they do. But that's not what God wants either. He didn't, he didn't say that. But just put all things in perspective and put him first. Sometimes we can turn our lives into a life sentence of worrying about what's going to happen 10, 20, 30 years from now. We may not even live that long. And if we do, maybe everything will work out fine and we'll regret the decades that we've spent worrying about stuff. Instead of making worthless New Year's resolutions that only last a few weeks, let us resolve a few things. Number one, yield to God's word. Give God the reins. And see how his promises play out in our lives. And as we learn, and to learn, to focus on him and trust in him. Let's make that commitment today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that even...